to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Over the years in my work as a therapist, I've encountered a lot of people who found their own path to wellness. One woman found that jogging 30 minutes a day was way more effective at treating her depression than the antidepressant she used to take. Exercise worked for her, but it might not work for everyone. Or there was a dad I worked with who found that his child's ADHD symptoms improved when he changed his kid's diet. And while there were a lot of people pressuring him to put his child on medication, He felt that the change in diet was best for his child and his family. I firmly believe you're the expert in your own life. It's up to you to figure out what helps you think, feel, and do your best, even if it's not in line with traditional medicine. So whether you want to improve your mental health or your physical health, today's show might inspire you to figure out what works best for you. My guest today is Danielle Walker. She's the author and photographer of the New York Times bestselling cookbook, Against All Grain. She never set out to write cookbooks, though. She created them out of necessity. She was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder at age 22. Traditional medicine didn't seem to help, so she set out on a journey to figure out how to save herself. Some of the things she talks about today include how to become an expert on yourself, how to conduct experiments so you can figure out what types of things work well for you, and how to stick to your lifestyle even when other people don't understand or don't agree with your choices. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Danielle Walker. She's mentally strong, and this is her story. Danielle Walker, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of your story. I know that you wrote a New York Times bestselling cookbook, but I also know that the cookbook sort of came out of necessity. You didn't necessarily set out to write a cookbook if somebody would have asked you when you were seven years old what you were going to do when you (laughs) grew up. I don't think that that was necessarily on your list. Congratulations on writing a successful cookbook. And can you tell us a bit about the backstory about why you wrote it in the first place? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely did not ever want to be a chef or a cookbook author. Um, And quite honestly, thought cookbooks were only kind of reserved for like Food Network stars, you know, like the people that you see on TV. Uh, So yeah, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease uh, when I was 22. And I spent about five years really, really suffering in and out of hospitals constantly on debilitating doses of medications. Um, And during that time, just kind of kept thinking, even though I was super young, but just kind of in the back of my head, just thought like, there's got to be another way. I can't do this for the rest of my life and really do it, you know, well and sustainably um, and be happy and find hope in that. And so just something in my mind, my autoimmune disease is, it's called ulcerative colitis and it is in the gut. And so even as a just postgraduate, you know, from college, not anything in the medical 
you know, field or science field, anything like that, and really didn't have any idea about digestion or the body, honestly, as a 22 year old. Uh, but just because of where my disease was located, there was just something in the back of my head that just said, okay, is there something food related that could either be making this worse or that maybe I'm deficient in that, you know, I need to be getting more of um, that. And it's just something that I just kind of kept looking into and kept researching. And there wasn't a lot out there at the time, but I did finally stumble on a few things online um, that gave me just like a little glimmer of hope to kind of attach to. And then from there, I just kept reading and researching and and finding actually that food could make a big difference. And during the process when you were sick and doctors were giving you information, were there times when people it said gave you obviously advice you didn't necessarily want to follow because I've I've read that they told you basically you were doomed to struggle with this forever and you could try yeah. all these different medications. The emotional toll that that must have taken on you at that age to think this is what my life might be like. You were hospitalized repeatedly and right. in horrible pain by the sounds of it. How did you deal with the emotional pain back then? Oh man, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in all honesty, the doctors really painted it more as a as a like brighter picture than what it ended up being. Um, they kind of said, "You take the medications and you'll live a normal life." There wasn't a lot of talk about the side effects or the multiple hospitalizations and these flare ups that I would have, you know, multiple times a year. So, really, at the beginning, I kind of left more confused than feeling doomed or not hopeful. It was more just like, okay, like, you know, you made this sound serious. You said it's not curable, but then on, you know, on the flip side, you're saying I could be normal. So it was just a lot of confusion at first, but yeah, I mean, as a 22 year old, I was married young. Um, my husband and I met when I was 16 and dated all through the remainder of high school and college. So I had a lot of visions kind of for my early twenties that felt like they were just slipping through the cracks really quickly with that diagnosis, you know, just questioning, okay, can I follow the passion in my heart that I wanted to, you know, in terms of my career and will I be able to have kids? Um, and just all of those, those things, kind of the ideals that I had built in my mind, um, after just, you know, two months of marriage just felt like all of a sudden were questionable, you know, and growing up or even through the dating kind of process in our wedding, it was like, those things are just going to happen. They're normal. Um, so that was really the biggest part at first was that kind of first wave of confusion and grief of, oh gosh, like this life might look a lot different than I built it up to be for my entire childhood and, you know, into young adultness. Um, and then there was kind of a second wave when I realized that food could make such a big impact of this grief of losing all of the foods that, you know, I grew up up eating, the foods that were tied to traditions with my family, um, things that I had hoped to kind of carry on and pass down to my kids. So there was a lot, kind of a lot of different waves of what I call grief, um, which I've, you know, know grief a little bit more intimately now through loss as a mom, um, but definitely still the same feeling of loss. So I can only imagine then to have doctors say to you, no, you can live a normal life. But meanwhile, that wasn't your experience all at the same right. time. Yes. What was that like to to try to figure that out? You have medical professionals saying it's not a big deal. And yet you're thinking, no, it is a big deal. This is affecting every area of my life. Yeah, it was frustrating. You know, I, you grow up being just told, listen to your doctors, which there's definitely some accuracy to that. And they're studied and they know what they're doing. But um, to hear them say that I would live a normal life and then to experience all of these really, really debilitating side effects and continue ending up in the hospital was frustrating and just kind of left me feeling like, okay, well, if 
if they're not looking out for me and they don't know how to help me, then who can, you know? And, and it was not just one doctor. It was like, we tried to see every specialist we could, um, in the area. And it turns out that I had a very, very severe case of the disease. Um, and you know, at that time, I don't think a lot of research was being done on diet. So not to their fault. They just didn't really, that's not what they learned, you know? So the medications that they prescribed worked for majority of people, um, with side effects still, but just were not cutting it for me. So yeah, it was, um, it was frustrating and really disheartening. It was kind of like, okay, well, where do we go from here? I am a therapist. So I work with a lot of people who struggle with things like maybe chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, things that uh, it's hard to to prove that you have or things that are hard to prove you don't have. And they get a lot of gray area. So they end up seeing a lot of specialists. There's a lot of questions about what they're struggling with. And sometimes they feel like they aren't being heard or that they're not being understood. Or sometimes it's even that they don't feel like they're believed or that they're exaggerating their symptoms. Did you ever have any of those experiences along the way? Yeah. You know, it, <laughs> I said this along the way a lot, actually, with autoimmune disease, a lot of times it's almost invisible to kind of the outside eye. Um, for my disease specifically, I could drop 30 pounds in two weeks time. So you could look at me if I was really sick and definitely see it. I was emaciated. My skin was you know, very, very pale from being iron deficient. Um, my hair would start to fall out. So there were certain times where you could see my sickness, but the months that were leading up to that, where I had these flare-ups, you would look at me and I could look like I do now. I could look completely healthy. People wouldn't see it, you know, unless they really know kind of the intimate details, which when you have a disease that is within the colon, those intimate details are not usually things that you share with everybody around you. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a long time of people kind of looking at me thinking like, oh, you're fine or, you know, you're healthy or, you know, even after getting sick, I had a a really bad setback now about a year and a half ago. And I was on prednisone, which makes your cheeks puff up really bad. Um, And even though I had dropped, I think this, this last one was really severe. I think I lost about 35 or 40 pounds over a couple of months, but because, you know, on social media or when you send your friends videos or you send a picture, you know, from here up, my cheeks were super big. And so people were like, you look healthy. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to deal with a lot of kind of those, the mental side effects of that, where people take kind of that, you know, just face value really in my face and, and associate it with like, oh, you're doing great. Um, and, and, you know, not wanting to always tell everybody everything, but also wanting them to know that you are suffering and struggling so that, you know, they don't just think that you're bowing out of dinner just because you don't want to go, or you can't have people over because you're in bed sick or you miss out on your kids, you know, like Christmas program. And the other parents are like, well, where is she? She's, you know, always busy or something like that. So it's hard to not just want to justify it to everybody publicly and to kind of just make sure that your like close circle knows um, what you're going through and that they can be there to support you. So how do you handle that when people are like, (laughs) oh, you missed out on your kids' activities and they don't necessarily know the reason why? It's hard. Um, It's one of the things that I struggle with the most because I just, I vowed at the beginning of becoming a mother that I would never miss out on anything. Um, But it's really come down to just not feeling like I have to prove myself to anybody but my family. If my kids and my husband and our, you know, close circle knows what's happening with me, then that's all that matters. And I don't have to prove myself. I'm I'm a good mom. And I just have to remind myself that, that even if I have to be in bed for a certain amount of time. I can still be a great mom to my kids, you know? And, and similarly, like I work now and when I am healthy, I travel and I miss things for that. But we do 
lots of other things, you know, that are special between the two of us. And so it's really just making sure that I look internally and not care about what other people around me think, which is always easier said than done. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of people who are struggling with maybe depression aren't in a place to go out and do things or struggling with anxiety. You can't see it and it might look okay. But they experience similar things where they say, I just, I can't go to this event or I can't manage myself right now. I can't handle it and end up staying home. And then people think that they're, they're lazy, they're antisocial, they don't like them. Right. Yeah. It's really difficult to not let their opinions reflect on yourself, but it is. It's so important, especially for autoimmune diseases, which I've really learned over the last few years more than any time is just how important my emotional, spiritual, mental health is for my disease. Because if those areas of my life are stressed, then that can cause a flare up. I used to think it was just food or just my physical, you know, stress that could cause flare ups. But I've realized that, you know, undealt with trauma, things like that can absolutely manifest in in a flare up. So it is very important to really try to put a priority on yourself and your mental health um, so that you don't end up worse than you are, you know, by worrying about everybody else around you thinking that you're lazy or that you don't care, things like that. There are so many conditions where physical health and mental health are directly related. And when one one gets worse, so does the other. What are your strategies for managing your mental health and staying as emotionally (laughs) healthy as you can? Oh, goodness. It's something that I have to keep reminding myself and that I am continually learning, um, but to prioritize that. It started with prioritizing sleep and rest. Um, When I would start to feel my body slip, my tendency is just to keep going and just to kind of push through it. It's my personality type. Um, And especially with writing all of my cookbooks and touring and things like that. I mean, the reason why I do that is to get to meet people and try to help people. So a lot of times it's hard to try to pull back from that because it's kind of what I feel like is my mission. Um, But when I really start to feel any sort of slip in my physical symptoms, making sure that I get a nap in the middle of the day that I, you know, if we're with friends or my husband wants to stay up late and watch a movie that I have to really kind of put my foot down and be like, no, I've got to go to sleep. Like I have to get this amount of hours. So I know that my body will feel better in the morning. Um, And then, you know, counseling. Uh, I mentioned we lost a daughter almost seven years ago now. And I have found that when I go through really heavy stages of grief with that, that it can absolutely can actually cause my disease to flare up. And so trying to remain consistent in talking with somebody and working through therapy has, has been something that I've been trying to focus on. I'm, again, not always great at it, but I, I'm trying. <laughs> um, I try to continue going. I can fall, I can fall behind sometimes. But um, those are kind of the biggest things. And then obviously, you know, physically just nourishing my body in the best way that I've found um, with, with nutrient-dense foods and nothing processed. Um, and especially during high times of stress, that's like even more important. Well, first, I'm sorry to hear about your daughter. Thank and you. I appreciate that you talked about grief and the sort of the ongoing process. Some of our other guests have talked about that too, that that grief isn't just something you do for 365 days and then it right. ends. It's right. something that comes up in waves throughout life and is always there. And I, as a therapist, of course, super appreciate that you said that counseling is helpful too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It it was, it's hard, you know, especially my, that's my personality. Like I said, it's kind of just to push through and work through things. I've always allowed myself to feel the grief from that and, and the grief from being diagnosed with the disease and my life looking different, but, but actually seeking out the help and taking the time aside to sit and work with somebody and digging up 
you know, old feelings is, is a hard thing to commit to. Um, but I've seen the benefits of it and I know that it's important. So it's something that, you know, especially if I'm having, you know, a particularly rough time, like around her birthday every year, you know, there's definitely things that can trigger it that I try to make it a priority to get back into it. And I, I do, I think it's very helpful. And I find for most people making that first appointment is the hardest, hardest. part. And then they <laughs> yes. say, once they come in and they say, all right, this isn't as bad as I had expected, or it's not as difficult as I had imagined, or picking up that phone was so hard the first time. Right. And people say, oh, I actually start to look forward to coming in and it's yeah. not so bad after all. Yeah, it's true. I think too, the beginning is always the most daunting. Like for instance, I switched counselors and that was the most daunting for me because it was like, oh gosh, now I have to go back through all of my history. And you know, you have to like reintroduce, well, introduce, I guess, this person to your whole life almost, you know, and that's, that's intimidating too, to think about like having to kind of rehash a lot of that. But it does, as you, as you move through it, there's just so much, I feel like so much healing, but so much that's uncovered and that you can work through and realizing, you know, why you are the way you are is really important. That's always one of the things I find as a therapist when people, sometimes they're afraid to take a break from therapy because they'll yeah. say, well, do I get to come back to see you? Because I don't want to start <laughs> all over with somebody new, which I completely understand. Yeah. I know how yeah. hard it is once you open up to someone to not want to do that. Um, but that, and you know, of course, people switch counselors for lots of different reasons. Sometimes we're just not a good fit and somebody right. wants to work with somebody else, which is fine too. Uh, but yeah, so thank you for sharing all that. I'm glad that, because uh, I always encourage people to talk to someone if yeah, if they need to. Yeah. Uh, switching gears to to your cookbook, how did you yeah. find the courage to say, I'm going to dive in and try to solve some of this myself, even though doctors are telling you it's not diet related? Yeah. Well, I think I, I feel like I've said this now a couple of times. I am that kind of person that just doesn't usually take no for an answer. And I'm always looking for, you know, for more and kind of for, for better. And that was just at that age, I was like, this is not, this can't be the rest of my life. You know, I mean, if I was in my seventies and I'd lived like our seventies or eighties and lived a great, vibrant, like healthy life, I might've just, you know, been willing to kind of sit back and let it do its thing. But I just felt like there has to be more. And really, you know, it was like chat boards at the time, kind of those forums. It was, this was back in 2000, gosh, 2007, 2008. Um, so social media wasn't really prevalent, you know, these things were being kind of talked about on like medical chat boards where people with similar diseases were sharing their journeys and their stories. And after I really heard from a couple kind of real people like that suffered with this disease that spoke highly of, you know, their symptoms and how much they changed with the way that they ate, it was when I was willing to kind of give it a chance. And, and honestly, you know, for me at that point, my mindset was like, well, gosh, if food, if, you know, food can make difference, I'd rather that than all of these medications. And it felt a little less risky than like, oh, well, I'm going to try, you know, this, 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 and this medicine, which might have all these side effects food to me. I was like, okay, well, I should be able to see it probably fairly quickly. And there's not a lot of downside to it. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, then I, then I pursue these medications. And so that was kind of, you know, the point, but I also just was so tired and sick of being sick. And so any alternative, I mean, I, I tried, I tried every single thing I read could potentially help from like transdermal nicotine patches to um, like vitamin infusions to, you know, I mean, everything you could name. It was just at that point, I was like, I can't be on these, these medications for life with the side effects that I'm, ex that I'm experiencing. And so what's it like then to change your diet? I would imagine that there are some complicating factors if you go to 
somebody's birthday party, maybe you can't eat the same things yeah. or you go out to dinner. I don't know. Can you go out to dinner? Do you, are there things <laughs> you can order? Do you have to be really careful about that? What's that like? Yes. Uh, and more so when I started than now, which is kind of, I mean, that's what's driven my passion and desire to continue creating these recipes and putting out all the cookbooks that I've done just because there's so many people that are like me, whether they've changed their diet for autoimmune diseases or they've got food allergies, um, they're celiac. I mean, there's so many different reasons that people choose you know, to switch or that they're forced to switch the way they eat. And yeah, I mean, at the beginning, you were looked at like you had four heads if you asked if something was gluten-free on the menu at a restaurant. And now, I mean, at least, you know, in bigger kind of metropolitan areas, you can see the little GF sign next to things or you can ask a server, you know, what's in something and they're able to tell you. Um, it was definitely very intimidating at first and really hard just because there's so much learning to do. There's just like a very steep learning curve when you barely know what ingredients are in the current food that you're eating. And then you're having to learn, you know, not only what you can eat, but then what all of these different things mean and, you know, where things like gluten are hiding. It's just like, it's a lot at first and it can be really overwhelming, uh, which is really what got me started blogging and writing the books was just trying to break it down for people so that they didn't have to go through as much of the kind of turmoil that I did and giving them really great recipes that felt like this was a sustainable kind of, you know, hopeful <laughs> way of eating rather than how I felt at the beginning of like, I'm never going to enjoy food again. That's really, I mean, very, very much so what I thought I was subjecting myself to. <laughs> and it was worth it to stay healthy. But I realized quickly that food could still be amazing and really delicious with the way that I was needing to eat if I just got into the kitchen and actually made it so... And then that's how you decided to write the cookbook was to say, all right, I figured out these recipes that I can still enjoy and why not <laughs> let other people learn how to do that too? Yeah. I mean, that's really why I started the my blog first. And the cookbook came out of the blog um, after just some of the recipes started gaining traction. And there was a publisher that contacted me and the, the woman who worked for him actually um, had a, a son with a severe autoimmune disease. And the story is, and it's kind of one of my favorite stories just about kind of the inception of the cookbook was um, he had a cereal day at school and all the kids would eat, you know, sugary cereals and he couldn't because she had him on a gluten-free, grain-free diet. And I think he was dairy-free as well. And so she used to make, I had a granola recipe that she found on my blog and she would make it for him and send it to school so that he could feel like, you know, part of his part of his crew, part of his his friends. And it made him feel normal. And so she reached out and asked if I would be willing to write a cookbook for this publisher. And so that's really where it came from. It, it I had started kind of like looking into maybe self-publishing something just because at that point all of the testing and childcare at that point, because I had like a one and a half, two-year-old, um, was starting to get expensive. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, maybe I can charge for my recipes since I'm putting so many out there for free and I could just put out like an ebook. And so the email from her came like at the perfect time. And honestly, I was like, who, me? Like, can I actually write a published book? I didn't know if I was qualified for it. Um, so it was, it, they took a chance on me and I'm very, very grateful that they did. I love that story. And then you end up on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list for how many weeks? It, the first one was, gosh, I mean, I can't even remember. It was somewhere around like 60 something weeks, um, but a long time. And then the next one, I had a second one that came out that that hit too. And they kind of both rode on it together for a while, which was, I mean, I, yeah, it was, an, it was amazing. And so then what's the, I mean, proof that the world needed this book, that people yeah. definitely wanted to learn more about it. And what do you find from your readers? What sort of things are they experiencing that make them want to change their diet? 
all sorts of things. And that's what, you know, I think really spurred kind of the the movement forward to continue writing these recipes and blogging was just because when I first started, I figured this was only diseases that are in the gut. It was just that like, that seemed logical to me. The food goes in, that's, you know, where it's affecting it. But then over time, as I started publishing these recipes, I was getting emails from people with rheumatoid arthritis, from people with multiple sclerosis, from um, people with psoriasis, from, I mean, just tons and tons of different ailments, even everything down to just, you know, like daily migraines going away, joint pain, sleep, things like that, that every time I'd get a personal email from somebody or when I started traveling and and touring for the books and getting these people coming up to me and seeing me in person and telling me how much, you know, their lives had changed or their symptoms have gone away or they've been able to go off medications, you know, just like it's been crazy to hear all of the different things that that it can help and i realized over time that the way that i was eating and cooking was like pretty much anti-inflammatory kind of inherently and so that seems to be why so many of these different conditions that are kind of inflammation based are being helped by that and you know everybody's bodies are different and some people eat the way i do but can't have eggs or eat the way i do but can't have nuts and so it's really about really listening to their bodies and figuring out you know what nuanced changes they need to make but yeah it's been it's been pretty amazing to hear all of the different things that have been that that this way of eating has you know helped and I really appreciated that you made it clear that not one diet works for everyone. Right. That it's okay for some people to say, I need this, or it's okay yep. to eat that, or this one thing causes problems for me, but this doesn't. And you just make that abundantly clear yep. and say, this is what works for me. Yeah, that's what I've always said. I'm like, you know, you have to really figure it out. Like, some people being vegan works super well for them. For me with a digestive disease, like eating a lot of raw vegetables just completely tears me up. And I also can't tolerate legumes and grains. And so I wouldn't have much left to eat. And my body does really well on like grass-fed organic animal proteins. And so, yeah, I'm, I've always kind of led with that of you have to learn to listen to your body. And that was, you know, one thing that I learned kind of early on. I tried a different diet called the uh, specific carbohydrate diet or the GAPS diet. They're very similar. And there were a few things that were allowed in there that I just kept eating because the book told me to. You know, it was like, okay, these people have had success with this. I'm just going to keep doing it. And I always say I kind of had horse blinders on that I wasn't noticing the symptoms that were coming from those things because, because the book said to do it. And so really when I started looking at it, keeping a food journal, really looking at the correlation of what I was eating to, you know, the day, the way I felt the next day or the next day was when I started to notice those different things. And that's kind of what I always encourage people to do because yeah, everybody's bodies are different and there's not really a one size fits all. Do any of your readers talk about their mental health improvements? We are getting to the point where we're figuring out, wow, a lot of things like depression and anxiety can really be affected by the food that we eat, the nutrition that we get or don't get. Are you hearing that from people who, who experiment with your cookbook? I am. Yeah. I mean, I've read a lot over the years of that kind of gut brain axis and how much they can really be intertwined. And I've gotten lots of testimonials over the years. We actually just, I have a memoir coming out in the fall called Food Saved Me. And we asked my my audience to submit their kind of testimonials of how food saved them. And we got a lot of mental health kind of comments that I wouldn't have expected. The only one that I have heard consistently over the years is from parents whose children are on the spectrum, which was a big surprise to me. I just didn't know that there was a connection. Um, And I mean, miraculous stories. One woman just submitted one that said that her son was nonverbal and he's eight years old and they switched his diet. I think she said about a year ago and he told her, I love you for the first time, like a couple weeks ago. Uh, I was like, 
that I, I mean, I have, I have a 10 year old. I just, I can't imagine that, you know, and that feeling as, as her, as his mom. Um, but those, those types of stories of, of children, I've heard more than anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think there, there is a connection and not only that, but, you know, I think some of the mental health conditions can come from the kind of lack of hope when you are dealing with a chronic illness. So if you start to see some improvement, plus you get to enjoy food and maybe kind of re-enter into some of those things that you had been missing out on, I would have to imagine just in general, your mental health can improve a little bit, you know? Definitely. Yeah. And how do you keep a healthy relationship with food so that you're not, say, perseverating on food on one hand, yet on the other hand, that you can still enjoy it, but you still have to say no to certain right. things you can't eat? It's tough. Um, it's actually something that I don't get to talk about frequently enough just because I usually am talking about like the recipe side of things, but it's really difficult. I struggled with an or with a um, eating disorder off and on as a ballerina growing up. And so there's always, you know, some of those lingering thoughts. Um, and the restriction with the food is definitely difficult. And that's why at the beginning I was really, you know, purposeful and trying to focus on the things that I can have. Um, when people would ask, you know, like, what can't you eat? Like, I could go through the list of all the things I cut, but what I prefer to do is say, well, I can have, you know, berries, nuts, seeds, grass-fed proteins, and kind of try to focus on, on the things that I still can enjoy. Um, and, you know, focusing on like, I can still create cookies and cakes and the things that I love that give me joy. Even with these ingredients, um, but it's difficult, and especially knowing that I can get so sick, you know, pretty quickly from eating the things that I have cut out over the years. There's always this stress a little bit at the front of my mind of like, what if I get, you know, exposed to gluten in a restaurant, or what if I eat this? And so, it's um, it's definitely one of those things that I'm that's a newer kind of thing that I'm trying to work through, realizing that while food has helped me significantly, there actually has been almost a stress of it in my life for like almost a decade that could have, you know, maybe caused some of those flare ups of just constantly not obsessing over it, but like, it's always in my mind when I'm eating, like what I can and what I can't eat. Um, so it's, it's a, uh, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to balance if I'm honest, but trying to focus on, on the good and the things that I can rather than feeling or trying to focus on like the deprivation of it has helped me significantly. And what sort of accommodations do you have to make if you get invited to uh, somewhere for dinner? Do you bring your own food? Do you? Yeah, it's a, I'm in a, I'm in a good position because I've been doing this as my career for like 10 years. So pretty much anybody that's surrounding us knows that that's the way I eat and that's the way I need to eat. And they're, all of our friends are so lovely and accommodating and, you know, they make things that I can eat. But in the beginning, yeah, it was either I would eat in advance because I never wanted to offend anybody. Um, or I would offer to bring something so that I knew that at least whatever I brought, I could put on my plate and then hope that, you know, maybe one or two other things I could eat. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a especially at the beginning, navigating that's difficult. I ended up really just hosting people at my house. Um, I mean, I love to go to people's homes and especially now <laughs> as I cook for a living, I'm like, I would love to come to your house and not cook. But, uh, in the beginning I was like, okay, it's just safer to offer to host because then I can make things. And I knew that what I was cooking would be good to anybody, despite the way they ate. That's always been my mission is to not make food that tastes like cardboard or, you know, where you know that it's free of this, this, and this. Um, so that was kind of the way I did it at the beginning. I'm like, I'll just host, like we, you know, host Thanksgiving and, and that kind of a thing or, or bring something. But yeah, I just, um, I've always been pretty cautious to not be the person at somebody's house. It's like sitting there with an empty plate and, you know, it just, you don't want to offend the host. 
Well, that's the thing. Food, there's such a social component right. to it, right? And over the years, have you had to deal with some people who maybe give you an eye roll or think <laughs> that you're being dramatic or picky or those sorts of things? In the beginning, um, mostly just because I don't think anybody understood it. Again, like when I was switching, this was all, I mean, gluten-free and celiac and those words were still pretty uncommon. And so I think a lot of people just questioned if it would work. Um, But I think, you know, people have seen what a drastic difference it's made in my life. I mean, it kept me out of the hospital for a decade, 10 years where, you know, for those first five, I was in constantly and on all those medications. So for the people closest to me, I think they were able to really see the difference and one of the biggest things for me was getting to show them that food could, the food could taste good. So they weren't, you know, like, oh, I'm not going to Danielle's house. Like she'll serve me, you know, gross food. Um, but yeah, I don't really get it anymore, which is great. Um, my doctors still question it. They don't believe that it's helped really? at all. No. Um, which it's just one of those things, you know, I'm like, okay, we just agree to disagree and I'm not, you know, not in there to try to, to preach to them about it. But yeah, they, none of them really think that it makes a difference still, um, which I think is pretty interesting. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating yeah. that you, you have proof. I'm sure you could look at hospital records and you could look at yeah. your ailments over the years and show that you have certainly made progress. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a battle Four. that I'm just like, oh, well, it's all right. We're not going to fight that one. <laughs> yeah. Right. At some point, you know, this is what works for you, yeah, whether they acknowledge exactly. it or not. Yep. So for someone who might be listening and maybe they want to say, okay, I am struggling with some sort of a health issue. I'd like to tackle my diet and make some changes, but I don't even know where to start. What would you recommend to them? Oh, man. So I hate saying it because I always feel like it's such like a regimented recommendation, but I always say to start with 30 days because I spent years dabbling and, you know, four days on and four days off and that kind of a thing, or just a little bit here, a little bit there. And I don't feel like I saw the improvements that I was wanting to see because my body, my gut didn't have time to heal. And I was just constantly, you know, introducing the inflammatory foods when I felt like it. So I would say, I I think 30 days, um, I think, you know, Grains and dairy seem to be kind of the biggest culprits for inflammation if you are dealing with any sort of an inflammatory condition. So I I, I say start there um, and just see, you know, like keep track of your symptoms and just really see if things improve. And by 30 days, you should be able to correlate some things, you know, and then some people can add certain things back in. And that's what's kind of the beauty of it. It's like, if you actually do more of an elimination diet and cut some of those things out, maybe more than just grains and dairy, refined sugar, I would say as well, and processed foods. Um, But then you can slowly add something back in at a time, you know, I mean, I think the biggest problem, and especially with like diet culture is you, you restrict, restrict, restrict. And then it's like most people just kind of go back to normal and it's like, okay, well, if you did see any improvement in there, how do you know which item was, you know, might've been causing harm if you just go back in full throttle and you eat everything all at once. And so I always encourage people to try 30 days and see, and then, you know, a week or two at a time, you just add one group back in at a time. And it's, it's tedious, but I always, I'm like, okay, well, if you find that you can eat some cheese <laughs> that by, you know, by, by adding that in one at a time and not with sugar and grains, and you don't know which is which, then I'm like, that's a great life. If you can have some cheese, but you find out that corn you can't have, you know, something like that. So, um, that's, that's what I did. It was kind of like 30 days of elimination, actually even a few more, probably a couple months. Cause I was so sick at the time. Um, and then just kind of one by one adding back in the foods that I thought might be problematic and seeing how my body responded to it. I think that's great advice. And for 
just about any challenge. You can do almost anything for 30 days right, to try exactly. something as an experiment. You, know, yeah. you don't have to stick to it forever, but right, to right. Know, okay, let's experiment and see what happens. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it takes your body some time and for you to actually really be able to look and see kind of, you know, the data on it, um, but also to form the habit. You know, if you do end up sticking with that, it's, it's hard when you eat. Uh, I always said, you know, for a long time, it was like if I ate a baguette, but then tried to make a grain-free loaf of bread the next day, like, of course, the grain-free loaf of bread is not going to taste great. <laughs> I mean, you have your your body and your your taste buds remember like the the real deal. So it's hard to kind of mimic that when you've had them so close together. But now I've been doing this for so long that I'm like, I think the food I make tastes great. <laughs> so your blog is Against the Grain. That's the name of your first book. Yeah. And yeah. Against all grain. It was against kind of all grain. Tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then you've got a memoir coming out in the fall. So I yes. think you'll help a lot of a lot of people with your story. And thanks for sharing your story with us yeah. today on the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you for having me. It was nice to get to talk about something other than just the recipes. <laughs> right? Every once in a while, you know, I get to be a guest on a podcast where I get to talk about something a little bit different too. And it's fun. <laughs> it's a good break. <laughs> Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I break down some of my favorite strategies from the interview and explain how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Danielle's strategies that might work for you. Number one, see if what other people are saying actually lines up with your experience. Danielle said her doctors told her that her diagnosis wasn't that bad and she could expect good results from medication. But that wasn't her experience. She was losing drastic amounts of weight and she had to be hospitalized often. That made her realize that she had to take steps to get healthy on her own. It's important to consider whether what other people are saying to you is actually in line with your experience. Maybe your well-meaning mother-in-law tells you that your anxiety isn't that bad. Or maybe there's a professional in your life trying to convince you that the side effects of your medication aren't a big deal. Remind yourself that you're the expert on yourself. Just because other people are telling you that you aren't that bad off doesn't make it true. You don't need everyone to understand or validate your experience. You can decide to move forward anyway, even when other people minimize your situation or offer unhelpful advice. Number two, tell your inner circle what you're going through. Danielle said she doesn't always tell people what's going on with her. She's not feeling up to attending one of her kids' events. She doesn't necessarily feel the need to explain her absence to everyone. But she does ensure that her closest friends and family are in the loop. She tells them when she's not feeling well, and she finds it helpful to tell people that she trusts. It's important to have some people who you can really talk to, even if they can't relate to your symptoms or understand what you're going through. Knowing that you have some supportive people in your life can go a long way toward helping you find the strength that you need when you need it the most. Just keep in mind that you might need to tell people what you need. For example, you might need to tell your friend, I'm not looking for advice on what I can do to feel better. I just want you to know that this is what's going on with me today. A supportive ear might be more helpful than unsolicited advice. And your friend might be relieved to hear this and happy to offer support. And number three, run experiments for 30 days. Danielle had to learn what diet changes worked for her by experimenting. She eliminated certain foods for 30 days at a time to see if it changed how she felt. It was a really slow process, but over time, her experiments gave her the data that she needed to create a plan that helps her feel her best. I'm a huge fan of behavioral experiments. In fact, it's a strategy that we often use in the therapy office. The experiments don't necessarily have to be about food. You can conduct experiments to see what helps improve your mental health. Like you might try exercising first thing in the morning for a whole month. 
Keep track of whether doing that makes your mood better or worse. If it helps you feel better, keep that habit. If not, try something else. You might try social experiments too, like talking to a stranger every day or messaging a friend every day. And determine if that helps you feel happier. You never know what habits or schedule changes will help you feel your best until you experiment with a bunch of different ones. I think we'd all figure out how to live better lives if we conducted a lot more experiments. So give it a try. No matter what your goals are, create an experiment to test for the next 30 days and see what happens. So those are three of Danielle's strategies that I highly recommend. See if what other people are saying actually lines up with your experience. Tell your inner circle what you're going through and run experiments on yourself for 30 days at a time. To learn more about Danielle's journey and her cookbooks, go to her website, againstallgrains.com. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.